Whether you prefer traditional hymns or contemporary worship, one thing is certain. All of it will pale in comparison to the worship in heaven. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah considers what Revelation describes as a growing crescendo of praise that will surround the Lamb that was slain. To introduce the conclusion of his message, Worshiping the Lamb, here's David. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We are looking together at the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. There we are examining the worship of the Lamb. And uh, it is a beautiful scene that uh, John paints for us, and it reminds us that worship is majestic. It is beyond anything that we know of in the natural realm. It is a spiritual experience, and um, as it is in heaven, so God wants it to be on earth. I often think of this um, particular theme Uh, When we sing this song in our congregation, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall be to Thee. These are words that remind us of the majesty of worship, and we're going to talk about it today. Tomorrow we'll talk about the warfare of worship as we review a story from the Old Testament that is truly dynamic. But right now, um, we need to take just a moment and let you know about some things that are happening. Uh, As I've mentioned to you earlier in the month, there's a brand new book that comes out October the 4th. The actual title of the book is this. It's not the end of the world, but it is the world of the end. And the short title is The World of the End. It's a dynamic discussion of our Lord's Olivet Discourse with his disciples about the future. Did you know that on the Tuesday before Jesus died on Friday, he gave this extended discussion of what's going to happen in the future to Peter, James, John, and Andrew as he sat on the Mount of Olives. This book is wrapped around those words that our Lord gave to us so that we would be prepared for what is happening to us today and what is going to happen in the future. Now, if you pre-order this book um, between now and the 3rd of October, we will send you some very special assets to go with the book. A beautiful bookmark, an A to Z guide to prophecy, 36 terms to help you understand prophecy, and five prayers for living in uncertain times. This package will be made available to you, and it will be our way of saying thank you for helping us to get this book off to a good start uh, through the pre-sale program. And many of you have helped us with this through the years. Thank you for doing it again. This means you will be among the first to get your copy of the book in the mail, and uh, you will help us get off to a great start as this book is launched in the first week of October. Well, let's launch today's program as we open our Bibles together. He is the standing lamb and the slain lamb, but notice he is the strong lamb. The scripture says he has seven horns. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, it speaks of majesty and strength and authority. He is the lamb who is meek. In fact, in the text of the book of Revelation, he is literally the little lamb. That's what it says. It's the diminutive of the term. He's the little lamb. But he's also the strong lamb. He is standing, he is in control, he is about ready to ride forth in judgment upon this earth. And finally, he's the searching lamb. He has seven eyes that go out across the earth looking as the seven spirits of the true God. Now when we read about this lamb and we see who he is and we understand who he is, 
It is no wonder to us that those who have a vision of him began to fall down and worship him. He is the focus of worship. They worship him because of who he is. By the way, it is interesting to compare the lamb and the lion. If you take time to do that, you will find many contrasting statements that at the same time bring the picture of Jesus into full focus. As the lamb, we see him in his first coming when he came to die. As the lion, we see him in his second coming when he comes to rule. The lamb is symbolic of his meekness. The lion is symbolic of his majesty. As the lamb, he's the savior. As the lion, he's the sovereign king. As the lamb, he's judged. As the lion, he's the one who is judging. As the lamb, he represents the grace of God. As the lion, he represents the government of God. He is standing because he is about ready to meet judgment out upon this earth. When the Lord Jesus finished his work here on planet earth, the scripture says he ascended to the right hand of God and he sat down. He sat down because his redemptive work was finished. But now we see him standing because he is about ready to come to this earth and wreak judgment upon those who have rejected him. And that's what the rest of the book of Revelation is all about. Well, he is worshipped because of who he is. He is worshipped, secondly, because of where he is. Where is he? He is in the midst of the throne of God. He is the very center attraction of heaven. He is the focal point of all those who are gathered there. He is the one to whom every eye is looking. And thirdly, he is worshipped not only because of who he is and where he is, but because of what he does. The scripture says that he is about to reclaim authority over all the earth. When he takes the scroll, the weeping ends and the praising begins. Why? Because the weeping is the weeping of a whole creation that groans in looking to the redemption that is ours in God. And when that redemption is about to begin, when the lamb takes the scroll in his hands and he begins to initiate the process of reclaiming the earth, the weeping stops and the worship begins and he takes to himself praise. Now, let's get this picture clearly in mind. God is on the throne. Around the throne are the redeemed, the four and twenty elders. In the midst of the throne or on the steps upward on each side are the four cherubim. In God's right hand is a seven-sealed book. There is heard the voice of the strong angel saying, Who is worthy to open the book? And one of the elders says, There is one. And as that one comes, all heaven breaks out into praise and worship as he takes that scroll and begins to implement in detail that which is written on both the inside and the outside of the scroll itself. What happens at that moment in the future is that three choruses of praise take place, one after the other. And as I said to you, there is no passage I know of in all of the Bible where there is more magnificent, massive praise than right here. This may be the greatest praise passage in all of God's Word. It is the focal point of all of history when all of the redeemed and all of the angels and all of the universe come before God to proclaim that He alone is worthy and they worship Him. If we could just enter in in a very small way to what happens here in these next few verses, we have crossed the threshold into real worship in spirit and in truth. Notice, first of all, 
that those who worship the Lord are the redeemed. Look down in your Bibles at verse 8 and notice what it says. And the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that people do not worship God? There is only one reason. No matter who they are, they may be the most out-and-out pagan person or they may consider themselves cultural and religious. But a person who does not truly worship God, there's only one reason why. It is because he does not truly know God. You cannot truly know God and not worship him. To know him, to see him as he is, to understand the majesty and magnificence of his person is to immediately fall down and worship him. So it is probably true that the barometer of our knowledge of God is our ability to worship him. For the more we know him, the more we crave to worship him. And as these elders are gathered before the throne, they have come to see this one who is the reason for their very presence there through his shed blood. And knowing him, they fall down and they worship him. It says that in their hands are bowls, and in those bowls are the prayers of the saints. Did you know that God collects your prayers in a bottle? (laughs) That's an interesting thought, isn't it? I know there's another passage that says he keeps our tears in a bottle. But here we're told that our prayers are in a bottle, the prayers of the saints. I don't know all that that means, but it strikes me as rather interesting that the very reason for their worship is the reclamation of the earth. And maybe the prayers that are in that vial are simply the repeated prayers that the Lord taught his disciples. What is it that he taught them to pray? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come down here as it is up there. And the prayers of the saints have ascended unto God. And now he is about ready to institute the program that will make his kingdom on the earth like his kingdom in heaven. The prayers are about to be answered. The scripture says that along with the bowl, they also have harps. They praise God with their harps. Now watch what happens. They sing a new kind of song. What is their song? It is centered in their redemption. They are redeemed out of every tongue and nation and tribe. The reason they sing is because they have been redeemed. And that's the first chorus of worship. Notice, secondly, in verses 11 and 12, after the redeemed get done worshiping, the angels get in on the act. It says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, the first thing you need to realize when you read this is there's no way to number the angels. In fact, every once in a while you'll hear 10,000 angels. The Lord said, could I not have called thousands of angels to come to my rescue? But in the scripture, the angels are never numbered. We have no idea how many angels there are. We only know there are an awful lot of them. There are thousands of thousands. There are killions and killions, literally. 
There are myriads and myriads of angels. And all of the many angels of all the universe are now gathered in the throne room of glory. And after the redeemed get done praising God, then the angels begin to praise God. And we have the text of their worship right here before us. There's a couple of interesting things about the angels and their worship that I need to point out because they help us to appreciate the wonderful privilege we have as the redeemed of the Lord to worship God. First thing is that the angels worship God in a different way than we do, at least here. We worship God as the redeemed directly. The angels worship God indirectly. Let me show you what I mean. Look down in your Bibles at the text of verse 9 where we are given what the redeemed are singing to the Lord. And the scripture tells us that they sing a new song and notice the pronouns. They're singing directly to the Lord. You are worthy to take the book, for you were slain and hast redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people, and have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Those who are redeemed sing their praise directly to the Lord. Now watch the text of the angelic song in verse 11. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power. They don't sing directly to the lamb. They sing about the lamb. They just make the message clear that the lamb is worthy. Redeemed ones sing directly to the Lord. The angels only can express their praise about the Lord. And here's the second thought. And when I mentioned this as we were studying the book of Revelation, I created a firestorm in our church over this whole issue. And I thought about not ever bringing it up again, but I still believe this, so I'm going to bring it up again. And that is that the angels do not sing unto the Lord, only the redeemed sing. In fact, there is no indication in the scriptures that the angels can sing. And I know that destroys all of your Christmas pageant ideas and all of the wonderful things that have grown up in our celebration of the angelic choirs and all of that. But notice what it says here. In verse 9, they sung a new song, the redeemed. Verse 12, the angels are saying with a loud voice. The redeemed sing, the angels speak. It's almost like the choirs sing great songs of praise, and then here's an antiphonal speaking choir made up of all the myriads of angels of all the universe, and they say their praise unto the Lord. Now, some of you may wonder, why is it that the angels do not sing? I don't have the answer to that, but I came across a passage in a book written by one of my mentors, a man that I greatly admire, Dr. W.A. Criswell, and he has put together some very interesting thoughts as to why the angels may not sing as we do. Listen to what he says. He said, when I first came across the idea that the angels do not sing, it was an astounding discovery to me. So I began reading and studying and probing and trying to find out why angels do not sing. And this is the best reason that I can find. Always the redeemed sing, God's blood wash sing, God's children sing, but angels do not sing. Here's my conclusion. Music is made up of major chords and minor chords. The minor chords speak of the wretchedness and death and sorrow of this fallen creation. Most of the nature moans and groans in a plaintive and minor key. The sound of the wind in the forest, the sound of the storm, the sound of the wind around the house, it's always in a minor key. It wails. 
The sound of the ocean moans in its restlessness, in its speechless trouble. Even the nightingale's song, the sweetest song of the birds, is the saddest. Most of the sounds of nature are in a minor key. It reflects the wretchedness, the despair, the hurt, the agony, the travail of this fallen creation. But an angel knows nothing of that. An angel knows nothing of the wretchedness, nothing of the despair, nothing of the fall of our lost race. And the major chords are chords of triumph and victory. Surely God has taken us out of the miry clay. He's taken us out of the horrible pit. He set our feet upon the Rockies, put a new song in our mouth, new praises in our lips. But an angel knows nothing of that. An angel's never been redeemed. An angel's never been saved. An angel's never fallen and been brought back to God. That's the only reason, he said, that I find as to why angels never sing. You see, our sweetest songs with deepest sorrows are fraught. Somehow it is the sorrow of life and the disappointment of life and the despair of life that makes people sing, either in the blackness of the hour or in the glory of deliverance. That is why the redeemed sing and the angels just speak of it. They see it, they watch it, but they know nothing about it. For it takes a lost and fallen man who has been brought back to God, who has been forgiven of his sin, who has been redeemed. It takes a saved soul to really sing. <laughs> End of quote. Well, I want to tell you something. I believe that. And I believe that at least in one aspect of our lives, all of us who are redeemed are one up on the angels. Isn't that something? Our worship in heaven is going to be far different than the worship of the angels. We'll get to sing in the great symphonic choruses and praises to the Lord, and then we'll stop for a moment and let the angels speak their praise. And when they get done speaking their praise, then we'll all enter in again with the music of our souls as we praise the living God. The angels praise the Lord. And then finally, at the very end of the fifth chapter, the whole universe worships the Lord. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever. And all of the earth and everyone praises God. What a magnificent scene this is with the whole universe bowing down before the Lamb that was slain. I don't know if you've noticed it. But in the book of Revelation, there is a growing crescendo of praise that begins at the very beginning of the book and continues to grow as the worship and praise of the Lord is presented. Go back in your Bibles, if you will, to chapter 1 and verse 6. And notice in chapter 1, verse 6, we have the first doxology, the first praise to the Lord. And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion. There's a twofold doxology. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 11. And here's the second praise song. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's a threefold doxology. Turn over to chapter 5 and verse 13. And here we are told, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne. There's a fourfold doxology. And finally, turn over to chapter 7 and verse 12. And there's a sevenfold or perfect praise to the Lord, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and forever. Amen. As people get to know who God is, their praise and worship of him 
grows in a crescendo of praise until we come to know him perfectly. Our praise and worship cannot be contained. And that is true for us, is it not? Those who are the best worshipers are those who know the Lord the very best. If you truly know God, if you have come to know him in a progressive way in your Christian life, your hearts and your souls are just vibrating with worship for your great king. Now, I don't know how this will be for all of us. But what we have learned here is just enough to give us a little taste of triumphant worship, the worship of the Lamb. And I thought maybe one of the things we might do is just do a little practice for our worship of the Lamb in glory. And I want you to look in your Bibles at the 7th chapter and the 12th verse. And there you will see the sevenfold doxology that we just read. Back in the fifth chapter, in the last verse, we are told that in the worship of the universe, after each one of the ascriptions are given to the Lord in praise, the four beasts respond with the word, Amen. And so they mention a characteristic about the Lord, and then they say, Amen. And I want us to practice our Amens. I think that for some of you, that is going to be very difficult. You have never said amen before in your whole life. And to form that word in your mouth is just going to be a real challenge. But if we work on it together, we're going to be using that word a lot in heaven. And we need to learn how to say it down here. And this is what I'd like for us to do. I'm going to let us take the 7th chapter and the 12th verse as this great doxology to the Lord. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. When I get to the 12th verse and say the first description, amen, I want you to respond as a congregation by saying, Amen. I'll read the next one, and you say, Amen. And we'll read it all the way through to the end of the 12th verse. And I'll read to the very end where the Amen is printed in the text, and we'll all say, Amen, together again. Can we do that? As we praise the Lord in this antiphonal way. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. 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 Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, now, we're going to do this again a little differently because if praise is a crescendo unto God as we get to know him, you can just sense this building as it begins from the beginning all the way to the end. I want you to say your first amen quietly, almost as a whisper, and then the second one a little bit louder, and the second one a little bit louder until we get to the end. The final amen at the end of verse 12 needs to be almost at the level of a shout the growing praise that we offer to the Lord as we respond to him. And I'm going to read this, and let's allow our praise to grow unto the Lord. All right? And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing. And glory. And wisdom. And thanksgiving and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And if you can imagine that with the thousands and thousands of all who are there 
on that day as we allow our praise to just ascend to the Lamb that was slain. Amen. Amen. What a, what a vision to look forward to in the future. Well, tomorrow here on Turning Point, we're going to um, investigate an event that took place in the Old Testament. It is found in Second Chronicles chapter 17, and it's the story of what happened when two nations came against each other, and God instructed the general of one of the nations to put his Levites, to put his musicians in the front of the battle and to march against the enemy with the choir leading the march. I never have ever read a story like that ever before, but there's one in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. We call this the warfare of worship, how powerful worship is in spiritual warfare. We'll talk about it tomorrow here on Turning Point. Hope you'll join us then. Don't forget to ask for your calendar when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of September. I'm David Jeremiah. Thanks for listening. Today's message originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. Let us know how this ministry is impacting your life by writing to us at Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098 Delta BC, V4L 2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of our inspiring 14-month calendar for 2023, Moving Mountains, and spend each day encouraged. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, My Heart's Desire, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Do you have faith that moves mountains? Turning Point's Moving Mountains 2023 calendar will remind you of the power of faith. With monthly scriptures and a Bible reading plan, this 14-month calendar will help you stay organized and grow in the Lord. The Moving Mountains calendar is yours with a gift of any amount to the ministry. And when you give $100 or more, we'll send you five calendars, perfect for sharing with family and friends. Go to davidjeremiah.ca. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible. Then continue the adventure with monthly audio adventures on airshipgenesis.com. Plus, download the Airship Genesis mobile game where kids will travel back in time to the life of Jesus. Blast off with the young one in your life at airshipgenesis.com. A group of junior high school students enjoyed a class trip to Washington, D.C., where they toured the White House. After their trip, the teacher asked the students what they thought of the White House. And one young man said in all seriousness, I was glad to visit my future home. I don't know what kind of grades that young man made in school, but we would give him an A for ambition. There is nothing wrong with ambition unless it becomes what the Bible calls selfish ambition. Ambition marked by humility is ambition God blesses. But ambition marked by selfishness 
is not. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's goals for your life on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.